Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. Hey, it's Kimberly, host of the Start Me Up podcast. If you like your politics with some loose talk and salty language, you're going to love my show. I interview the coolest people like Mary Trump, Kathy Griffin, and DNC chair Jamie Harrison. The Start Me Up podcast has an easygoing, casual style and a strong emphasis on left-leaning politics. We also have frank discussions about sex and more than a few spirited rants. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup or wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. Uh, I'm A.G., and with me as always... Andrew Torres, and we are leaning hard into uh, episode 13. None of this skipping from 12 to 14 for us and pretending like there's a floor that doesn't exist. No, no. (laughs) This is episode 13. Strap in and like it. Ah, it's like the good old Mitch Hedberg joke. People, you know, they don't have 13, 13 floors in hotels, but people on the 14th floor... You know what floor you're really on. (laughs) If you jump out the window, you will die earlier. Uh, All right. Uh, So thank you, by the way, to this week's new patrons, Emily Trapp, Dari Smith, Paula Peffer, and Jeff Schaefer. And take it away, Andrew, for what is definitely, only coincidentally, the three most ridiculous names on the list. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Hot Spears Ode to a Small Lump of Filibuster I Found in My Armpit One Midsummer Morning. <laughs> that's that's an excellent mashup. It's really, really good. And uh, thanks, Hot Spear. Thanks to Nope. I uh, love that. And thanks to... Why aren't we calling the January 6th insurrection an act of treason, which, you know, we definitely are. Anyway, these <laughs> kind folks signed up at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod and gave us literally as little as one American dollar. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you're a patron, then last Saturday you got the chance to play pub trivia against Team Awesome. Ooh. That is you and me. And uh, we did pretty well. We came in a close second, one point behind the team called 
Trivia Newton John. <laughs> that was so much fun. I can't wait to do it again. Uh, if you are a patron at any level, the video of the uh, of the actual trivia is up. So if you want to watch your fellow uh, Isle 45ites play, you can do that. What did not make it, what is, I think, like, just not preserved for eternity. Um, I stuck around for, like, an hour and a half in the chat, just, like, answering questions, bullshitting. It was a lot of fun. I meant to do, like, you know, two or three. I had a lot of stuff going on, but it was, like, it was so much fun. We did kind of an impromptu Q&A. Uh, Jen was the uh, ringmaster or, you know, whatever. uh uh, and uh, and we had a ton of fun. So uh, we will definitely be doing right as we're sort of figuring out how to best get patrons what they want. Like the these kind of monthly hangouts, whether it's to play trivia or to, you know, answer questions or to just goof off like it, it's that's been a lot of fun and um, can't wait to do it again. So that's our last plug. Patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. You haven't signed up. You're literally stealing this show. No, no. <laughs> but we'll give you, you know, it's always a free show. We know you a lot of, you know, college students, single moms, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, if you can help us out, help us out. Mm, yes. And um, it, there, there were some really interesting stories that have happened over the past week. Of course, we've been watching the Derek Chauvin trial. Yep. We've had a, a, a string of police officers testify in favor of the prosecution. I've never seen anything like that. Just uh, officer after officer after officer and then trainer, uh, lieutenant and the, the chief all coming in that just to break that blue wall of silence we so often see in these kinds of situations in these trials where there is a police officer on trial. It was just it was very uh, noteworthy to me. Yeah, it was really encouraging. Also encouraging were the um, expert uh, medical testimony, um, which which I think, look, if if we had an hour, I could get into right the way in which the defense strategy is going to try and drive a wedge between the experts. Um, that there's always a little bit of sort of lack of convergence. Um, but 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 I, I don't want to lose sight of the overall picture, which is um, my my views have not changed from the beginning. Um, that is, uh, are there things that I would nitpick about any lawyer? Sure, right, because that's what lawyers do. Um, uh, this, you know, kind of goes back to your comments on the prosecution's opening statements, right? Like there, there, there are things that could have been done differently, uh, but in general, uh, the prosecution is putting on an, a, a very, very good case. Uh, I think it, it is going to be a challenge uh, looking at, you know, prior cases and, and, you know, and what I keep in the back of my head is the OJ trial, right? Uh, by this point in the OJ trial... Everybody knew what the one single coherent theory of the defense was, right? It was cops in L.A. are racist and they falsify evidence. And yeah, uh, maybe O.J. is guilty. But if the cops framed a guilty man here, then you have no choice but to acquit him, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I that remember was it clearly. Always, that was very clearly the underlying argument. I defy you to articulate what the underlying argument is here. It has been a grab bag of racist bullshit, and that's it. Yeah, there's a couple of things that sort of became clear at first, where where it seemed like, especially in the opening statements, they were going to really harp on the fact that there was this angry, distracting mob of onlookers. And it's like a nine-year-old and a 16-year-old 
the ex-MMA guy, a, a, an off-duty EMT firefighter, you know, and, and they've all testified and, and they've all been extremely potent witnesses. Uh, and But the other thing I thought was interesting is when they had the medical examiners come up, they kept trying to talk about the fentanyl yeah. in his system. And I thought one of the really, really important uh, pieces of redirect was, you know, uh, the, the prosecutors um, asked questions of this uh, one doctor, a pulmonologist, I think. And then the 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 defense cross-examined and was like, yeah, but fentanyl can cause death. Yes, fentanyl and uh, overd- overdoses on fentanyl, etc. And it just sort of a weird, nothing really um, coherent about that particular cross-exam. And then so finally, prosecution gets back up on redirect and says, all right, look, you can die from fentanyl, right? And when you die from fentanyl, there's a coma that happens before that, right? Always? Yes, always a coma. And at any point, was George Floyd ever in a coma? No. Okay, thank you. And he went back and sat back down. And and then, of course, there was that slide where they brought up where they started doing ratios of um, mm-hmm. the fentanyl and then what fentanyl breaks down into as they meta- as it metabolizes. And his ratio, George Floyd's ratio, was 1.96 of, of fentanyl to the, metabol- the metabolized fentanyl. And then they did a – because this lab is so huge, he was able to put together other statistics to show all of the other f- deaths that he looked at with fentanyl in the system. That ratio was 9.06. Then he also did DUI mm-hmm. uh, cases where fentanyl was involved, and those people were still alive. And their fentanyl ratio to the metabolized fentanyl was 3.09 or something like that, still uh, almost twice – uh, what what uh, George Floyd's level was. So it was a very, very powerful slide. And, you know, I, I understand a lot of people are like, why do we even have to do this? The video is the video. And it's like, yep, yeah, but the what the defense is going to do is they're going to try to put a, t- a seed of reasonable doubt in anybody's head. And it is the prosecution's job to erase that little bit of reasonable doubt that could that could creep in. And I think they did a really excellent job so far. One hundred percent. And look, Every lawyer will tell you, right? I don't do criminal cases. I do civil cases. You do the same thing. You frontline your witnesses uh, in terms of where their weak spots are. Because if you don't, then the impression that the jury gets is that you as the prosecution didn't know that, right? And, And so if they went through and pretended like... Oh, you know, there's never been a history of drug use here, right? He had no drugs in his system. Then, like, the second the defense uh, gets up and puts on their first witness, all of a sudden the jury is going to say, well, if they didn't tell us about the fentanyl in his system, what else did they tell us about, right? Right, it, yeah. It wrecks your credibility. And so what you do is exactly what you do here. And 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 I do kind of understand the... It shouldn't matter, but this is why it matters. It matters because you are making a lengthy, multi-week presentation in which you are asking the jurors to trust you that the story you're telling is correct and that the witnesses you've put up are not lying. And part of the way in which you do that is by painting as accurate a picture as you can, warts and all. So that dovetails nicely with... What I wanted to talk about uh, that that happened today and will uh, likely continue tomorrow as of uh, this recording, um, and that is if you're watching this trial, you get to see a thing that you will not see in any other criminal trial, in any other murder trial anywhere in the country. Um, and I, I 
don't know whether you should be seeing it. Um, it, it is a, a, a subset of testimony called Spark of Life Testimony. And the reason it's called Spark of Life Testimony, which is a very stupid thing to call it, uh, is because Minnesota is the only state that permits this kind of testimony. None of the, the rest do. And that was the language that the Minnesota Supreme Court used in 1985 when, uh, in perhaps what might be seen as an ironic twist, um, the victim in that case was a police officer. And uh, the Minnesota Supreme Court said, yes, you can introduce testimony that shows that he is, quote, imbued with the spark of life uh, and a human being and not just sort of a rote statistic. Um, now, now, let me explain why that's significant. Um Every state allows, to, to some degree, victim impact testimony, right? But that comes out after you've decided, it comes out in the sentencing phase, right? It comes out after you've decided guilt or innocence, because whether the victim was uh, a good guy, a bad guy, or something in between is absolutely not relevant, right? Like, from a legal perspective, bears nothing uh, on the question of whether the accused defendant did it or not, right? And that's why 49 states do not allow you to introduce this kind of testimony. Minnesota does. Um, but you have to be very, very careful. So, um, for example, we've, we've talked about this before. Um, the federal rules of evidence, uh, as as mimicked in, in the states and, and, and at play here, um, exclude testimony that is unduly prejudicial, even if it is somewhat probative, right? Um, so, for example, um, that there have been motions in limine in which uh, the, the prosecution has kept out certain pieces of evidence um, that are character evidence, including uh, a conviction for armed robbery from 2007, right? Um, and they should, right? Uh, and, and the reason you do that is not because it is not relevant at all to the instant case, right? It is the fact that somebody has previously committed a, uh, a, a, a violent felony um, is slightly more informative in uh, in an issue in which, you know, that the uh, Derek Chauvin is saying, uh, you know, well, you know, we were we were terrified for our lives, you know, that sort of thing, uh, which is obviously bullshit. Um, it's slightly more relevant, but it's way more prejudicial than it is relevant, right? So the judge has kept that out and correctly. So, and, let, and let's be clear, right? If the judge had allowed that in, uh, that would have been uh, 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 atrocious, right? Like that kind of evidence one-off prior criminal offense that's hugely prejudicial never ever comes in particularly when you're talking about the crime you know the victim of the crime here right um but now suppose you put on spark of life evidence right and you say uh george floyd was never violent with anyone right he was always composed he never right yeah you know, at that point you run the risk, and 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 I I've looked through Minnesota case law, right? Like this is where this issue this issue gets litigated. Is this where you open the door? To exactly right. And then on cross examination, right? Uh, despite there being a motion in limine, uh, the uh, you know defense counsel gets up and says, 
okay, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Witness, uh, you've testified that uh, George Floyd was, uh, you know, never violent. Are you aware? Right. And then you introduce the evidence uh, and. Uh, then there's immediately an objection, um, but but that the the ability to ask that question right po- poisons to some extent the jury pool right like they now hear about this thing and even though they're instructed to disregard it and we've talked about like deliberation uh, you know in, in, in by and among the jurors um, you know you can't unring the bell it's hard to unhear it. Yeah. so yeah, this is where we hear those common phrases we see in all the movies ah uh, you open the door counselor yeah. and ah uh, yes but you can't unring the bell and strike <laughs> it from the record and uh, no no exactly you know? right exactly right <laughs> yeah. all those things come out so so my point is just that this is an area where i would tread very very carefully and so far right the first day of, of Spark of Life testimony, that that's what we've seen, right? We've seen, you know, sort of at the most basic trying to humanize George Floyd, which he, he, he is a human. He is a real victim. He deserves to be humanized. Um, in most states, you don't do it this way. In most states, this comes in in the victim impact phase, which in my view is kind of where it belongs. So, you know, I mean, I'm not a prosecutor in Minnesota. Uh, to me... The, the the danger is very very high when you uh, uh w- you know when you sort of go down the character path and it and it's not one that that I know that they needed but um I, it 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 shows you right at the end of the day right that the prosecution is availing itself of every argument that is available in, in order to, to move this case forward mm-hmm. and and Minnesota is the only state and they don't do this federally either correct nope. So when you see it in the movies, it's probably a lie. <laughs> it, <laughs> it just definitely lies. is. Well, you know, like, right, think about it. It just logically speaking, who the victim was bears no, you know, bears nothing in terms of whether the defendant committed the crime. So No, and we saw this all throughout the Mueller investigation. It, was, it wasn't until the sentencing when Manafort's wife... Uh, who hated him didn't really show up to say he's a really great guy please go easy on him you know it's uh those character witnesses so to speak don't really come out until the sentencing phase. oh so. manafort's wife that is such that is such an a plus callback <laughs> <laughs> well you remember all the stuff oh. that the daughter yeah yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay well, uh, I do have, we'll, we'll continue to cover this trial. It's going to be really interesting to see the rest of that Spark of Life testimony and how lightly they tread and how they navigate it. Um, but I did, before we go to break, wanted to bring in a little a joy uh, to, to this program. And, um, you know, I've been following the Matt Gates gate, <laughs> Milkshake Matt, quite quite closely. And a couple of stories, I think the big ones that have broken, I'm not going to go into all the details, you know all the details, but I think the big ones that have broken are, first of all, the Venmo payments, which just cracks me up. Um, I I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, He apparently paid $900 via Venmo publicly to Greenberg. Greenberg then publicly distributed those funds to three women, uh, one who had just turned 18 six months prior, uh, according to court documents, at least, um, that, no, not court documents, just sleuthing, just online sleuthing, right? I still have questions about these uh, ID cards that they were 
parsing in the middle of the night, 400 miles away from Matt's home. And and they have video of it. But I'm it's he and then Greenberg pays these out to to, to these women and, and puts memos for tuition <laughs> and schooling. Uh, in the memos, so that that story broke. Then, of course, we've we've got the story that uh, Trump declined a meeting uh, with with uh, Gates, and Gates added himself to that Doral speaking engagement just days before right, it happened. Right. <laughs> and Trump aides told the press, "Yeah, we think he's just down here trying to accidentally bump into Donald Trump." Is what we think is happening. But Jason Miller, a spokesperson for Trump, an absolute douchebag. Uh, said, no, he never asked or, or you know, uh, Trump said Gates never asked for a meeting. So therefore, we could have never denied one. It's like, OK, thank you for that Perry Mason moment um, <laughs> of how time works. Uh, it just really um, not a good. Like, here's the thing. Despite the pardon not happening, the meeting not happening. Gates is being hung out to dry, left high and dry by this Trump administration uh, after he bootlicked it for for so long. Uh, And it's it's just interesting to watch. Why is anybody surprised by this? Right. Like in in his entire wretched, miserable life, has Donald Trump ever done anything for anybody who was not immediate family or circle of cronies? Right. Well, like he was a circle of crony. And 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 here's and here's the thing, like he mentioned when when Trump got up and spoke at some bullshit thing uh, this weekend. Uh, he's yeah, he's still like fresh in his you know unwashed golf shirt and the like hat pulled down over his eyes that would have gotten me kicked out of any class in college right like, yeah ugh. but he named uh jim jordan and christy Noem and like he named he went through some republican supporters but but gates was uh conspicuously omitted from that sure. list so, yeah no yeah yeah i it I I am delighting in this story. Uh, I am delighting in watching the uh, the inevitable fall of Matt Gates, and and also like um, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. Although I have a pretty good idea if you're listening to the show at the moment. Um, now's not a great now is not a great time to engage in the philosophical questioning over what should count as statutory rape. Okay. Um, so how about like the Glenn Greenwalds of the world, like back the fuck off for a while. And look, I would be saying that regardless of whether the target was somebody I am delighted to see go down or would hate to see go down. Like, yeah, let's, yeah, let's not. Didn't Greenwald tweet like, well, in such and such state, 16 Uh, is the age of consent. And in this state, 17 is the age of consent and i'm like how do you know that why do you know that yeah yeah that was that was real weird knowledge to have at the at your fingertips yeah 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 i I, well we have some really really great news about a new scotus (laughs) commission coming up we're going to talk about that in the next block we've got a lot of other cleanup stuff. Uh, we're going to do the D block. We've got a lot of new hirings happening, particularly DHS, Customs and Border Patrol. It's going to be a, a great show. A lot of information. We still have a lot to get to, but we do need to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back with information on the new SCOTUS Commission. 
Hey everybody, today's episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 is brought to you by the most useful app on my phone. It's my new favorite life hack. It's called Blinkist. Sometimes finding the time to read or work on professional development can be tricky when you're super busy, but Blinkist is designed to solve this problem. Blinkist is a unique app that works on your phone, tablet, or web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, that need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes. You can read or listen to, you know, anywhere you are. Most successful people are known to be voracious readers, and Blinkist makes it possible for busy people who want to get the main points of a book quickly and start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book while driving or working out. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, and history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers, and it has the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. I like Blinkist for me personally because in less than 15 minutes, I get the main points of a book, and that helps me evaluate which books I want to read in full later. I've recently read Everything Trump Touches Dies by Rick Wilson, ETTD. Pretty accurate title. It's great. And with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for just our audience. Go to Blinkist.com cleanup, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com cleanup. Cleanup is all one word. Start your free seven-day trial, and you'll save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com cleanup. And welcome back. We are revisiting a story from episode three in which President Biden announced that he was forming a bipartisan committee on reforming the Supreme Court, um, one over which I expressed some disappointment with the initial press release, if you might recall, Allison. Yeah, and and I know, like, we were putting the show together today, and I'm like, I'm going to write up the SCOTUS thing and the thing, and you're like, no, 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 no. Uh, nope. <laughs> no, no, I want to write up the SCOTUS thing, uh, because I, and I was like, yep, yep, you're right, you're right. I remember we were talking about Jack Goldsmith uh, was said to be one of the co-chairs of this committee, and it, take it away, because you, <laughs> this is your baby. Yeah, okay, so... When we first covered it, uh, the leak was uh, Goldsmith and Bob Bauer were going to be the two co-chairs. And Goldsmith is a hardcore right-wing originalist, right? Member of the Federalist Society, outspoken cheerleader for what the Federalist Society has done, right? And the, the role that they played in basically taking command of the entire judicial nomination process under Trump. He supported Gorsuch. He supported Kavanaugh. He went out of his way. He wrote a separate letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee about how qualified Amy Coney Barrett was. <laughs> and, and, you know, mm, I mean, am I wrong here thinking that those are the th reasons we need reform at the Supreme <laughs> Court in the first place? Like, uh, so what's, what's the latest? What is the good news here? Yeah, and so... So, yes, you're correct. Um, last Friday, Biden formally promulgated the executive order that established this presidential commission. It has up to 36 members, which has not been filled out yet, two co-chairs, and Goldsmith is on the committee, but he's not one of the chairs. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we, we knew longstanding Biden lawyer Bob Bauer was going to be mm -hmm. one of the co-chairs, Bob, blah, blah. 
but uh, but on Friday, it was announced that the other co-chair will be Yale Law Professor Christina Rodriguez. She's Latina. She's 48. She was on Biden's transition team. Her specialty seems to be immigration law. Uh, I take it you think she's a probably better choice than uh, Goldsmith? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. Rodriguez is very, very smart. Her work demands serious engagement. Um but but it might be slightly different than you would think just from like hearing that bio, right? Like she just published a book called The President and Immigration Law. Um, it is actually a continuation uh, of work that uh, she began back in 2009, right? So she wrote a law review article, 90 pages back in 2009, expanded it out to a book. Um, I've read the law review article. I've read excerpts of the book. Um, it's very, very scholarly. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Rodriguez's argument is that the major disconnect on immigration law is um, the fact is what she calls an asymmetry. She says uh, Congress is the is the branch that has wide discretion over the admission of immigrants, right, setting policy, while the president has wide discretion over enforcement and deportation. So you have this unequal kind of push and pull dynamic. Ah, so, but I mean, unequal, there are co-equal branches of government, but what it feels unequal, and I mean, is the solution to curtail the president's power over deportation? That'd be a real good suggestion. Um, Rodriguez considers that and says, well, that's not super likely. So, therefore, and I think she knows she's got a heavy lift here. And again, remember, she pitched this in 2009 uh, before we could really imagine a Donald Trump as president. Uh, but but it is an argument in favor of vastly expanding the power that Congress delegates to the president regarding admission of immigrants. So, look, I think that this is intellectually defensible. Um, feels pretty tone deaf in 2021. <laughs> yeah. Um well, but what? there's good news about this commission, though. I mean, I saw that Lawrence Tribe is on it. Yep. Tribe isn't just a genius. He's also a no-holds-barred, tell-it-like-it-is anti-Trumper. You know we love Lawrence Tribe. But there's other great things that this commission is doing and looking at. So what are, what are some other good news pieces here? Yep, yep. Uh, you're right to point out Tribe. Uh, Ed Tribe has forgotten more about con law than I will ever know. Um, he's exactly the kind of person that needs to be on this committee. Um, other people who deserve to be recognized, including a couple of folks that um, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to do some some deep dive on. Uh, Bertrand Ross, not somebody I knew before this announcement, um, is the chair of Berkeley's Diversity and Democracy Project. And he has written extensively on the intersection of constitutional law and the structural marginalization of poor and minority communities in the democratic process. Not a bomb thrower, super smart guy whose work really deserves recognition and voice. And I'm super happy to see him on this commission. And I think my favorite name is Kermit Roosevelt. He's a Roosevelt and he's Kermit. And he's articulated a pretty actually impressive anti-originalist theory of constitutional jurisprudence over the last decade and a half, right? Yep, uh, Richard yep. Pildes cares about election law and gerrymandering and clerked for Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, ah. who I love, is on this commission. Yeah. And look, like, so you're doing a great job at picking out the rock stars on the committee. Um, and, and look... They're not a lot of poison pills. Uh, it's a bipartisan committee, uh, but it's it certainly leans to the left. Oh, good. Um, I, I was pretty shocked to see William Bode, uh, the public apologist for originalism and the subject of the last two deep dives on opening arguments as to how wrong he is uh, on there. Um, I, I, 
I just can't imagine what he's going to bring to the table. <laughs> well, maybe nothing, but you got to have these other ciders on there, right? I mean, it's like I've been talking about uh, all, gosh, since since Biden took over and was trying to get legislation passed, I've been talking about making Joe Manchin happy by appearing bipartisan, but, but actually inviting Republicans to the White House. We're going to have to invite the Republicans to the White House. We're going to have to sit down. They're going to have to tell us that they they don't want anything close to what we want, and then we can move forward. We have to do that due process. And so I feel like that's kind of what's going on here, you know? Well, and, and, and that's what I'm going to wait and see, right? Because to me, when you ask me to define what is it about the Supreme Court that needs reforming— um, what needs reforming is that over the past 20 years, when Republicans have controlled the White House, they've outsourced judicial nominations to the Federalist Society, including uh, uh, most notably on the Supreme Court, but like up and down the judiciary. And the Federalist Society is, I know our listeners don't need to hear this again, a narrow, partisan, right-wing, motivated cabal of activists that want to undo major segments of American government, right? Um so I, I, I look I, and I see a couple of folks who are... Uh, and I should say more than a couple, half dozen who are v- vocal in their belief that that's a problem. Right. Tribe, Eiffel, Roosevelt. Um, the, the, there's there's someone on there that I didn't know before. Uh, Guy Uriel Charles, who was about to become uh, the first Ogletree professor at Harvard. I had Ogletree as a professor back in the day because I'm old. Um, so, uh, you know, like that, that that is those are really, really good signs. Um little worrisome that we got two cheerleaders for the Federalist Society on there. Um, but uh, uh, but we'll see. And I guess the question is, will there be gatekeeping around, you know, the elephant in the room? Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, we need to see their sort of process for how policy is put in place. I'm suppose I'm assuming they just write reports yeah. for the president and then policy is decided. So. Uh, but I mean, if you truly wanted a bipartisan commission on judicial reform, this w- seems like it would be reflective since you've got those, but you know, people from both of those sides, members and cheerleaders for the federal society and those loud rock star voices against it. You, you do. And, and I'll, and I'll go a step further, which is to say, um, you, you don't have any Justin Walkers on here, right? Like you, you don't have people that in my view are right unreachable like you know unfit to communicate in civilized society right like uh, you know you have you got i've invited uh you know william bone may come on my show right like it, mm. it it's he's somebody i'm happy to talk to i'm happy to talk to jack goldsmith um i'm not gonna you know pull any punches if i get a chance to talk to those guys uh but um you know it it's it's a little bit it's a little bit different so i'm 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 trying, AG. I'm trying. Well, the list of topics <laughs> that they're tasked with covering is very heartening mm-hmm. because we've got uh, the court's role in the constitutional system, yep. the length and service and turnover of justices on the court, the membership and size of the court, ding, 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 size of the court, and the court's case selection rules and practices. So... They aren't leaving anything off the table to be discussed here. And I think that that's really important, uh, especially given that we've got some of those Federalist Society wonks over there. But that, you know, that we have these other incredible, powerful voices, too, that and they are allowed to be considering and discussing the size of the Supreme Court and and whether there's term limits and turnover and age and stuff like that. I I agree with that 100 percent. I'm glad that that's, you know, sort of where. We, we've come kind of full circle in, in terms of, of wrapping it up. And 
ultimately, if um, if you have some of these moderate to Republican voices conceding on things that are facts, they're they are inconvenient facts. If you are a member of the Federalist Society in a Biden administration, but but for example. The entire judiciary from top to bottom is grotesquely overworked and overburdened. And if you can get a Jack Goldsmith to say that in his report, knowing that the implication of increasing spots on the Supreme Court means increasing picks that Joe Biden gets to make, um, you know, then that that adds that adds a lot to the argument uh, going forward. So, you know, so I understand it. Uh, I, I see the risk and reward. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, yeah. we'll see how it goes and we will be following it. And I know that <laughs> indeed we will. I know that you're going to, you're going to definitely have some details, um, as, as they unfold. I'm very excited about this. It's time we look at this. It's past time. Yeah, we look at absolutely. It. Uh, all right. Um, Next up, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, we're going to be talking about cleaning up one of the most egregious human rights violations uh, of our time, which is the zero tolerance family separation policy at the border and what Biden and the Biden administration for, by exec- executive order and through policy at Department of Homeland Security is doing to correct this situation moving forward. Uh, so stick around. We're going to talk about that right after this break. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's AG. We all know our health is the most valuable thing we have, especially now. Nowadays, we're all focused on our well-being, but I prefer to avoid being in a doctor's office right now. I think you do, too. Thankfully, there's a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's called SteadyMD. SteadyMD is your personal doctor online. You start by taking a quick quiz to get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle and your health needs. Next, you have a one-hour appointment with your doctor to start a relationship. That's that intake appointment. After that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. Unlike other services, this isn't a random doctor on call. Each steady MD doctor has a limited number of patients on their panels, so they have time to listen and give you personal attention that you deserve. I took the quiz, and I like that they matched me according to my individual health and lifestyle with a provider. SteadyMD can help you get and stay healthy, manage chronic conditions and concerns, reduce stress, lose weight, sleep better, feel better, boost your immunity, and much, much more while still in the serenity of your home so you can skip the waiting room and the germs. Prescriptions are sent directly to your home or local pharmacy, and you get unlimited access to your doctor for only $99 a month. No additional fees, visits, or co-pays. SteadyMD will help you understand and get the most out of your health insurance, but insurance is not required. SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. So go to SteadyMD.com slash cleanup, take the free quiz, and see which doctor is perfect for you. That's SteadyMD, S-T. E-A-D-Y-M-D dot com slash cleanup. There's no risk, no long-term commitments. Uh, That's steadymd.com slash cleanup. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Everybody, welcome back. I'm AG. I'm here with Andrew Torres. We are about to talk about what I think is, and I said this before the break, one of the most egregious human rights violations of like just, I just, it's the stuff of, terror horror movies um what's been going on with the zero tolerance policy under the former guy's administration started by jeff sessions who has now come out and said he feels bad about it um but about a week ago nbc reported that biden's justice department had a deadline to decide whether it would respond to requests by lawyers representing separated families 
um, for documents related to the former guy's zero tolerance policy. This is the ACLU case. The judge extended the deadline to April 9th last week as that was the deadline. Uh, and now he's extended the judge has extended it to April 9th. And the materials include emails between top Trump administration officials and minutes of high level meetings during the planning of the policy, as well as and I didn't, the, the Department of Justice Inspector General report uh, on zero tolerance. They did that. So now they have to decide whether to hand that over. Now, at the time, the Trump administration cited executive privilege and didn't hand over shit, yeah. basically. And that's that's what they have to decide now. Yeah. And that's that's the nice thing about the party remaining the same, but the folks staffing that party changing 180 degrees. So we have also learned uh, that uh, Biden's family separation task force uh, has identified 5,600 files that are marked yet to be reviewed. Those are from the first half of 2017, right? So really, as soon as the policy was put into place um, and uh, the thought process is that they may hold evidence of additional family separations, according to a senior official at the at, at DHS. Mm-hmm. And they, well, these were these were the cases that while they were developing the zero tolerance policy uh, before it officially went into to place, that's where they found these files from. Right. That's kind of where these fifty six hundred unreviewed files, because, you know, you remember and we'll talk about this in a minute, but. Uh, There was a commission put together while Trump was in office to help reunite these families because there was a court fucking order to make it happen. And they ignored it and ignored it and finally had to do something about it. But they only had documentation since the official beginning of the zero tolerance policy. But apparently this new Biden task force is the one that found these 5600 files that have not yet been reviewed uh, about separated families that happened in that first half from the day Trump took office to about, I think, June or July. Yeah. And 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 you've touched on the two most important points, right? So this is in the discovery process, this ACLU suit. Um, and there are a couple of, of, of parallel suits that, are, that have been brought by the ACLU. Um, when you seek discovery, you say, oh, um, policy went into effect uh, August 1, 2017. So you'll say produce all documents related to, you know, the policy from the date August 1, 2017 to the present, Um, what Biden's task force independently developed. Okay, so uh, again, they didn't have to disclose this or arguably they didn't. It's a civil lawsuit. They didn't have to disclose this. They said, by the way, um, looks like uh, we have um, a department, right? The Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement that has these 5,600 files that are dated from inauguration day, January 20th through July of 2017. Uh, and, um, they, they may relate to family separations, even though they technically predate the policy. So mm-hmm. that's exactly correct. And the, and the date's important there because the the like any time predating the policy early 20 early 2017 is apparently not included in the ACL ACLU lawsuit. So they that's why they don't have to produce these. Right. But uh, I guess approximately twenty eight hundred families were separated during the administration's zero tolerance policy in mid 2018. Lawyers have said previously more than a thousand others had been separated prior to the policy's official implementation. This official provided no timeline for reunification for still separated families, but said the Biden administration 
had entered into settlement negotiations with the ACLU in their lawsuit against the federal government over separations, but said that an initial report on the progress of the task force was due on June 2nd. Yeah, and and put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that at the end of the segment, because that's actually a separate parallel lawsuit. Uh, So in addition to the ACLU lawsuit, right, we have the steering committee lawsuit, right? Um, Those are lawyers uh, tasked with reuniting separated families. uh, And... They filed a document last Wednesday um, that's a status report saying that they had successfully contacted the parents of 61 more children. Um, And so that drops our number down. And we're going to talk about these specific cases. um, But but our our present number of known separated children whose parents have yet to be contacted by the government to try and reunite these families uh, is down from 506 to 445. Okay. So this committee attorneys working pro bono, it's called the steering committee. uh, They periodically update the court uh, on their progress. Uh, They file a line uh, with, with the court uh, to the judge that is overseeing this entire process. Yeah. And the month before February, the committee brought the number from 611 to 506. Right. They found the parents of 105 children. They began their work under the Trump administration. They've continued their work uh, while the Biden administration's family reunification task force builds its own database of potentially separated families. Um, that's the t- that's the task force we were talking about that identified the 5,600 yet to be review reviewed files that that came up before the process or the, the actual policy was implemented. But what do you think that is, is taking the initial steering committee so long? Well, I mean, there are a couple of factors. Here. So, look, the lawyers on the committee told the judge that the separations that occurred in 2017, uh, which were right during this time period prior to the zero tolerance policy, have been particularly difficult to track down because the government didn't keep any contact information or records from that time period. So that may be present in that in those 5600 files um, of these. So we're down to 445 individuals. Uh, the committee told the court that 302 have been deported to Central America. Um, I, I, I wish that were more specific, but 302 have been deported. 129 have parents here in the United States, so presumably they can be contacted. And the remaining 14, we still don't know. But but look, 14 is a manageable number, right, compared to 611. Yeah, and then, of course, we have these 5,600 new, new files, but they haven't been re- really reviewed. Yeah. We don't yet know how many there are uh, contact information for or how many, if any, have been deported. Um, the Biden task force was created by executive order yep. on Biden's 13th day in office. The chair is Secretary of Homeland Security. The vice chairs are Secretary of State and the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. And the attorney general is also on this task force, and they're tasked with identifying Their job is to identify all the children separated from the day Trump took office to the day he left, January 20th, 2017, January 20th, 2021. Then their second charge is to reunify those families. And then their third charge is to, uh, uh, you know, constantly brief Biden on on their status. So while this other steering committee pro bono have have been, you know, finding anywhere from 60 to 100 uh, reuniting these kids with their parents every month of, of those that we know we have contact information for, this parallel task force is moving forward 
board, apropos of nothing other than just because we have to clean up this mess uh, <laughs> and it's the you know the right thing to do, but you know not being compelled by any lawsuits or anything like that have just since they you know since the executive order since they were formed have found located fifty six hundred additional files yeah so that's kind of what I'm seeing um, and the ACLU is asking the Biden administration now for documents refused by Trump because they've been looking for this in these lawsuits, this lawsuit, particularly I'm thinking of the ACLU lawsuit for all documents and emails pertaining to the zero tolerance policy. And, and now Biden's in office. So they're re-asking. They're like, Hey, have, will you give it to us? And again, I think they have until uh, April 9th to decide whether they're going to do that. But do I have that right? Yeah, you have all of that exactly right. And there's, <laughs> there's one more wrinkle to sort of layer on top of all of this. Right. Um, and, and that's another ACLU lawsuit that has sort of been uh, thrust back out into the discussion here. So a, a, as I'm about to explain this, um, think about the sharp contrast of, of what we've discussed here, right? Like, um, it remains an ob. You know, you 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 can criticize the Biden administration on uh, some of its policies and some of its actions. It, it represents a radical departure from the last guy. Um, but here's an area where uh, the ACLU may may resume their lawsuit. So, um, once COVID hit. Uh, a little over a year ago here in the United States, and we started to realize how serious it was. Trump took the position that the Public Health Service Act of 1944, which is found at Title 42 of the U.S. Code, also authorized the immediate expulsion of immigrants, adults and children. Right. They called this the Title 42 immigration process. Spoiler, there is no Title 42 immigration process and began summarily expelling immigrants at the border that even applied to those who were seeking asylum, fleeing torture and persecution. Okay. The provision of the law that they are citing is 42 U.S.C. sections 265 and 268. I'm not going to read them to you because the segment's running long, but these are quarantine provisions. They're not immigration provisions. They don't have a goddamn thing to do with immigration. They empower the Surgeon General to set up quarantine protocols to prohibit the introduction of persons and property and avert the danger of communicable diseases from foreign countries. It 100% does not apply here, right? Like it says, oh, hey, you got you got a, a big boat of people with tuberculosis. You can stick them in a tent for 14 days. The Surgeon General can implement proper protocols. We can TB test them before you let them loose. It does not say you can turn and send refugees home to face political persecution. Um, but, of course, that's how the Trump administration uh, dealt with it. The ACLU sued immediately, June of 2020. Um after Biden promulgated his executive order, right, the one we've talked about, the ACLU uh, agreed to stay this particular piece of litigation and negotiate in good faith, right? They said, look, seems like y you don't want to be taking this ridiculous position on the Public Health Service Act of 1944. So uh, we're going to stay the case until June uh, and uh, and see if we can't reach a settlement. Um However, after President Biden's March 25th press conference, in which he said, quote, the border is closed and they're all going back, end of quote, 
uh, ACLU attorney Lee Gallant entered his appearance, right? That's just you file a document that says, hey, I'm an attorney here to argue on behalf of the ACLU. Well, the only reason to do that, right, is if you're planning to reopen the litigation and uh, and move forward. So um, I, I've continued to check the docket. Uh, as of today's record, they have not moved uh, to lift the stay, but uh, but that's what I'm looking for. I, I, I hope we can reach, you know, uh, uh, good faith accommodations here, but um, but look, I am glad that the external forces that are working with the Biden administration uh, are still going to hold the line on the Biden administration. Yes, so. very glad about that as well. Uh, all right, we've got uh, comings and goings that we can discuss. We've got some new hires coming in, and uh, it's going to be uh, our D block, and which is seriously still one of my favorite <laughs> parts of this show. Uh, but we're going to do that right after this quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AJ for Clean Up on Off 45, and it's time to tell you about my favorite thing in the world, Magic Spoon Cereal. Incredibly delicious, super healthy cereal that brings joy to your mornings or afternoons or evenings or midnight snack times. My favorite food growing up was always cereal. I would plop down in front of Saturday morning cartoons and eat a whole bowl and then drink the delicious milk. But as an adult, I eat healthier. I'm trying to avoid carbs and sugar, so I had to give it up. But Magic Spoon saved me. It tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood, but it is super nutritious and good for you. Magic Spoon has amazing zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Plus, it's only got 140 calories per serving. It's deep breath... Keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And, exciting news, Magic Spoon is releasing two amazing new flavors for a limited time only. We're talking about cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that's not the most comforting, indulgent combination, I do not know what is. This is the ultimate treat-yourself combo, so make sure you get some while you can for a limited time, or build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. I love the great new flavors. Combining them is amazing, too. Cocoa and peanut butter together taste exactly like a peanut butter cup. So go to magicspoon.com slash cleanup to grab the new limited edition cookies and cream maple waffle or a custom bundle and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code cleanup, all one word, at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, and so am I. It is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cleanup and use code CLEANUP to save $5 off. And finally, as we teased before the break, welcome back to the much-beloved Goodbye to You slash Comings and Goings segment. And uh, and there are a lot of those to cover this week. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. First up, President Biden is preparing to nominate Tucson Police Chief Chris Magnus to be Commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Magnus is an outspoken critic of the former guy's immigration policies and how he'll run the country's now he'll run the country's largest federal law enforcement agency as it contends with the biggest increase in migrants arriving at the southwest border in two decades. Although I question that it <laughs> seems like a regular seasonal influx to me, but it may be too early to speak on that. But just looking at numbers and math, it seems to be. Uh, this is a typical seasonal influx. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I think I think you're right to to say that. You know the 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 jury is out on that. Um, look, Magnus. Uh, it a that's an awesome name. Um, <laughs> but but uh, Magnus is also he is a Biden kind of pick in the best possible way, right? Like, so here is somebody who has led 
Tucson, Arizona, right? Like I, uh, he's led the Tucson Police Department, right? Like this is this is not somebody that you can tar as you know an Antifa Black Lives Matter protester, right? Um, but he's been in that job since 2016 and has consistently endorsed policies and practices favored by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? That emphasize community-based policing. Uh, less military hardware, less aggression. He has generally been on the side of not cooperating with federal immigration authorities in terms of voluntarily turning over information and cooperating with ICE stings. Um, So look, like that's all really, really good stuff. Yes. The only blemish on his progressive record seems to be that Magnus declined to support efforts to make Tucson a sanctuary city. Um, which is but basically that means one that completely prohibits agreements whereby ICE deputizes local law enforcement officers and to enforce federal immigration laws. So he he didn't uh, and was, I believe, actually out spoke out against uh, having Tucson be a sanctuary. City. He, he did. So let's acknowledge and put that in context. So the statute that's at issue here is 8 U.S.C. Section 1357, subsection G, which says that the attorney general may enter into a written agreement with a state or a subdivision, a county or city, and take an officer or officers that the AG thinks is qualified to perform the functions of an immigration officer, quote, in relation to the investigation, apprehension, or detention of aliens, right? So in in English, AG can say, hey, um, let's deputize your local cops uh, to go help us, you know, bust some aliens. Right. Uh, But the key part of that is right. Written agreement. The locality has to agree. Okay, so a sanctuary city is one that says in advance, don't ask. We're never going to agree to this. We're never going to voluntarily turn over our locally gathered data to CBP. Right. Like we're just just go the hell away. Don't ask. Magnus's position is not don't ask. Uh, It is we will entertain these requests on a case by case basis. But I have to tell you, I cannot find and I looked right. You know, I'm not shy about, you know, (laughs) landing a couple punches here if we have to. I cannot find a single example of Tucson cooperating with ICE raids, allowing its local tu- Tucson cops to be deputized uh, by uh, by ICE, um, planning secret raids. And look like, you know, we've had secret ICE raids in New York City, right? I mean, you know, this is not that that's a pretty good record. I'm pretty impressed. Yeah. And Tucson would be a place to, to target if you were going to do that. Yeah. Um, What's good? Well, Magnus would also be the first openly gay Customs and Border Protection Commissioner. He's been outspoken against police abuse of force. Uh, He was among the law enforcement leaders to publicly come out against Derek Chauvin, calling what he did indefensible. And when it was discovered a few weeks later that his own Tucson officers restrained a suspect who died in their custody, Magnus offered to step down from the job to show his willingness to take accountability for these mistakes. Um, The city manager rejected his request, and he remains on the job to this day, but he offered to tender his resignation. Yeah. So, look, let's give a let's give a warm welcome to Chris Magnus. He replaces acting commissioner Troy Miller. Uh, It seems to be just a lifelong staffer at CBP, who in turn replaced Mark Morgan, the last in a series of goddamn monsters who were appointed acting commissioners by the other guy. Morgan, you might recall, made up a bunch of complete nonsense about a second migrant caravan movement forming in Honduras that he went on Fox News on 
January 8th to scare us all. Now, hmm, I wonder why he might have made that mm. up two days after the insurrection at the Capitol. Pivot, yeah. pivot, pivot. Blame the immigrants, blame the immigrants. And yeah, that's, mm, well, bye-bye. Anyway. Um, Adios. Well, yes, welcome to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Magnus is one of six in, intended Department of uh, Homeland Security nominees. The Biden administration announced today, on Monday, as we record this show, Monday, April 12th. Biden will also nominate Urjado, the former general counsel of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, to lead the agency, which is responsible for running the country's legal immigration system, which hopefully we will have back because former guy pretty much destroyed legal immigration yeah. as well. Yeah. So hearty welcome to Mr. Jado. And if you're wondering what kind of nominee this is, I refer you to his Twitter feed in June of 2020 in which he said, quote, it's time for Congress to save USCIS, that's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the branch he will now lead, from the Trump administration, who has driven USCIS into the ground with xenophobic policies that bankrupted the agency, leaving it woefully unprepared to ride out the fiscal impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, it's not often you get to run the organization that you tweet about Trump mismanaging. Um, I like it, and I, I think that means you and I get to be uh, department yes, heads real noteworthy, soon. So. Noteworthy. Uh, other Nominees today include John Mayer, or Meyer, excuse me, former DHS and Justice Department attorney. He's going to be the DHS general counsel. And John Teen, a, t- a National Security Council advisor to Obama, and he's going to be the deputy DHS secretary. They are all uh, PAS appointees, so they will require the advice and consent of the Senate to be appointed. Right. Yep. So yep. now the secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, Alex Mayorkas, called them extraordinary picks that might might hurt these nominees in terms of getting Republican votes. What do you think? Uh, yeah, you may be right. So Mayorkas, such a great pick, confirmed by the Senate as the first Latino director of Homeland Security by a 56 to 43 vote back in January. So that's 43 garbage Republicans voting no. Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania not voting. Uh, and then yays from some of our usual suspects, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, uh, Rob Portman, Odd in Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, and uh, and a, and a, and a nice uh, yes vote from Dan Sullivan of Alaska. So I just want to be in on the ground floor on the the maybe purpling of Alaska. Yes, yes, please, yes, yeah, please. Give me more of that. And <laughs> mm, in what is sure to anger some folks, but is completely meaningless. Joe Biden has prepared to name Cindy McCain as the U.S. ambassador to the U- United Nations World Food Program. Now, multiple sources have confirmed that McCain is undergoing a background check. <laughs> Good. The Biden administration is set to announce most of its ambassadors at the same time in the next few days. Her appointment would follow a tradition observed by former Presidents Obama, George W. Bush and Clinton of nominating at least one person from the opposing party to a cabinet position. Trump, of course, broke that tradition. <laughs> uh, so but yeah, she's she's going to be nominated as the U.N. World Food Program ambassador, Cindy McCain. Yeah, I and I hear I I can I can feel the the like collective neck hair of our listeners bristling up. I I am on team perpetual warfare as much as anybody. This is really a no brainer, right? Like the McCains are beloved in Arizona. 
They endorsed Biden. He won by 10,457 votes. When your win is that close, literally every single thing you did in the campaign was key to winning, including campaigning with Cindy and Meghan McCain, right? We have seen this coming for a long time, right? Um, It was reported back in November of 2020 that Biden was eyeing McCain for an ambassadorship. Um, At the time, Politico said maybe uh, ambassador to the United Kingdom. Turns out that's probably going to be a lot of specific work to be done, Uh, more so than usual, right? Like, usually that seems like let's hang out in London and, you know, drink a lot of gin and tonics, but uh, (laughs) kind of a busy position. Uh, McCain was on Biden's transition team advisory board. She spoke at the DNC. This is fine. Right. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Relax. She's a Democrat. She's a Democrat. Just it's fine. Um, and and this was cool news too. welcome back to the POW MIA flag that had been taken yeah. down by the former guy. That's flying again. Um, speaking of the McCain's, I should say above above the White House. Now, he t- I think and I think that's why he took it down. Honestly, was his beef with McCain and especially that vote, you know, on uh, on repealing Obamacare. Yeah, I, not the, the POW MIA flag, not associated with the most liberal elements of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. again, to credit the administration for finding a job that actually reflects McCain's actual talents. Mm-hmm. Politico, who broke this story, noted that Cindy McCain has a history of working on programs to combat food insecurity and has previously worked with the U.N. World Food Program. Uh, During the McCain 2008 presidential campaign, she traveled to the country of Georgia uh, with the U.N. World Food Program and visited wounded soldiers there. So she does actually got a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of experience um which is you know more we can say for rick grinnell or ratcliffe (laughs) or any of the other dnis at the odni that we've had to deal with and you know so i'm i'm okay with this yeah Uh, tentative hello to you cindy mccain yeah absolutely hello um if you could get your daughter to say some less stupid shit that would help oh that would be that would be fantastic (laughs) but welcome welcome aboard i am all for advocating that a charlotte climber take Megan McCain's spot on the view. That's Ooh, just a, I'm just throwing that out. Love there. that. Love that. Um, I know Charlotte's into it. So if anybody feels like tweeting that out or, you know, if yeah. you know anybody who works on the view, uh, <laughs> I think that she would be an excellent choice. That, that would be an outstanding choice. Love it. Mm. But that's our uh, comings and goings. A lot more comings than goings. Question for you. Any idea when we're going to see U.S. attorneys? I have been waiting with bated breath i keep i keep checking the page looking for it right because we got a 2022 statute of limitations on these obstruction of justice uh, charges that could be brought against trump in the dc u.s attorney's office um it, it we need bodies this this question actually came up uh during the um the post trivia uh, party that we had, and uh, and 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 somebody basically said it was a, it was a a, a non uh, non U.S. listener had had some really nice words uh, for you, uh, tolerable words for me. Um, listens to the show and uh, and said, well, when when are we going to get you know all of these uh, indictments of you know Trump and Trump org and Trump uh, organization, Trump administration officials, um, and uh, and and I. I shared that uh, I shared that frustration. I said, "Look, the, the the best guess that I can give you right now is sort of twofold. Like, number one, um, 
all hands are on deck at the DOJ regarding uh, insurrection prosecutions, right? Like coordinating 500 different defendants. Um, that's that's a lot, and that's a minefield, right? Like if, if they did what you typically did, you know, would do, which would be settle out 497 of those. Um, I think, yeah, you'd have you'd have outrage, right? Like people would be up in arms, and rightly so. So. Um, that's that's my excuse making for DOJ, but I'm with you, right? Like the, the clock is ticking, and it's and it's time to you know show us that you're committed to cleaning mm-hmm. up aisle 45. So and it's not like Merrick Garland who has to do all that stuff. It's it's the senators, right, or and or delegates from each state or territory that interview. Uh, those particular candidates and then make their recommendations. I mean, there's a process. I oh, know, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's not like... That. <laughs> no, sorry. You let me clarify because I, I realized that, that I, I didn't quite say an assumption, right? So um, that's not a reason not to have U.S. attorneys. The fact that they are understaffed is an additional reason to think that some of these prosecutions have not gone forward right but yeah that yeah. that you know they're focused elsewhere and we still don't have our u.s attorneys for this administration so i wouldn't look for somebody like uh tim shea or sherwin who is now i guess back in miami i don't even <laughs> know who's at the dc oh it's the acting okay yeah through the vacancies Act right. stuff but like it's so so short staff we don't have our new appointees uh uh, but, you know, fear not. Those obstruction of justice charges happened. He, he he committed those that criminal behavior. I should say he engaged in that criminal behavior in 2017. That gives us till 2022. We can do it. We can do it. I'm all for it. Me too. And then one final question. If anyone can answer this for me, just hit, hit us up on Twitter um, at aisle 45 pod, A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. How long does it take to get a drug like the vaccines off of emergency use authorization and into regular authorization because half of our military is refusing to take these shots and uh, it's because it's on emergency use authorization Uh, they can't require them until they are off emergency use authorization i was just wondering how long that takes if anybody knows when that's going to be because when I was in the military, I didn't get a fucking choice. I don't want these motherfuckers to be able to choose either. Sorry, that's what you get for signing up. I did not know that's that that story that it is not being reported elsewhere. So I'm I'm really glad that you uh, that you brought that out. Yeah, no problem at all. So if anybody knows the answer to that, hit us up on Twitter at aisle forty five pod. And that is all we've got for you this week. It was a very long show. We had a lot of stuff to cover, but I'm so glad that you were here. And Andrew, I absolutely love doing this with you. So thank you very much. <laughs> Highlight of my week, AG. Love it. And uh, and let's uh, let's keep doing it. Yeah. And we'll see you all Tuesday on the Stereo app at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, where we're going to do our little live meet and greet if you want to talk to us. So stick around for that. That'll be cool. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Thanks. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence was designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And this this is is How We Win. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. 